This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about what's next after the Women's March on Saturday. What a great event. Joan Walsh was there in Washington, D.C. We'll speak with her later in the show. Also, suing the president. Some leading constitutional scholars have filed a lawsuit against Trump, arguing he's been in violation of the Constitution since day one. Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the law school at UC Irvine, is one of the attorneys in the lawsuit. He'll explain the emoluments clause later in the show. But first, we have an insane clown president in the White House. That's what Matt Taibbi says. He's been following Trump since the very beginning of the campaign. He's a contributing editor to Rolling Stone and winner of the 2008 National Magazine Award for Columns and Commentary. He wrote the New York Times bestsellers The Divide, Griftopia, and The Great Derangement. And now he has a new book out. It's called Insane Clown President. Matt Taibbi, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Well, Friday, Trump took the oath. Saturday, he went to the CIA and denounced the news media. Sunday, he tweeted. Monday and Tuesday, he went to the office and signed some executive orders undoing some of Obama's policies and proposals. How would you evaluate Trump's first days as president? Any surprises? I don't know that it was surprising. They were ridiculous. The immediate preoccupation with the crowd size was Freudian and absurd. And then, of course, the way they handled it was characteristically they made everything worse unnecessarily by saying one thing and then saying another thing and then using the ridiculous alternative facts term. It was all very in character. So nothing surprising, but, but certainly entertaining. In your new book, Insane Clown President, you say, quote, Trump made idiots of us all, close quote. Mm -hmm. I have to say that includes me. I said that Trump couldn't win. What did you get wrong about Trump? Past a certain point, 
I, I was actually feeling pretty confident that he that he had a good chance. Uh, for, I would say like around February or March of last year, and I thought I thought um, that he was going to be a good sort of contrarian pick because there were things about his campaign that that I thought the media was overlooking, and then. Then I just fell for every media slash poll cliche about you know the invincibility of the Democratic coalition and how how many different um, demographic accidents would need to happen in order for him to actually win the presidency. And I fell for all that stuff. And what I should have done is just listen to what what people were saying out on the campaign trail and, and, you know, observed what was actually happening, which was that he was generating an enormous amount of heat out there, and it wasn't the same on the other side. The people who were president before Trump, of course, had a lot of differences, but you say they all had one thing in common from at least Kennedy to Obama. All of them, you say, were, quote, fronts for one or the other half of the familiar alternating power structure surrounded by predictable, relatively sober Confederates who manage the day-to-day, uh, close quote. How is Trump different from that? Uh, well, first of all, Trump, Trump is, is a genuine outsider, and, and this is something that you know probably your listeners aren't going to love to hear, but in a very bizarre way, Trump's victory was um, was a victory for democracy. It, it, it proved that um, you didn't need to have the assent of the news media or the two major political parties or the the donor class in order to win the presidency. He he was an outsider as far as all three of those groups were concerned. And it, in the past, really, if any one of those groups um, rejected the candidate, the, that candidate wasn't going to go forward in, in the process. And uh, Trump, you know, basically by himself, and, and in conjunction with with some new realities in terms of how we disseminate information, his ability to manipulate the news media on the internet, um, to use social media to communicate directly with people without having to go through without having to go through the press, uh, he was able to mount a genuine outsider uh, run to the presidency and succeed. Of course, characteristically, he was exactly the wrong person, um, but it, you know, it was a true revolution in a lot of ways, and it was, I think it's, people need to understand that. You write in your new book, Insane Clown President, that all presidential elections are ultimately referenda on race. If you're right about that, it seems to me Trump's victory says something really frightening about America today. Yeah, oh, Absolutely. I think it, 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 there was a moment after this election that was very frustrating for for a lot of reporters who covered the campaign because there was a um, an instinct that that people had the to to want to say that Trump won because of all one reason right there there was one group of people who wanted to say it was all about race and if he said it was about anything else they got upset there was another group of people who said it was all about economic anxiety and if you said and you know if you if you said it was about race they got upset. I think it's a combination of all these factors, and to me, what happens when people are not doing well financially, um, and if you go to you know a lot of towns that are formerly thriving middle class American towns, you know they're they're really hollowed out and suffering, and there's these skyrocketing levels of opiate abuse and alcoholism and suicide, 
and all that leads to to people having hard feelings and and you know the the race the race factor the racism factor becomes worse in that scenario and i think i, I think that's what's going on it is that yeah there was there was a, a, a an overt rejection of the idea that um you know we're all in this together and we have to find a way to live together and you know we should we should work towards you know a, a multicultural society Trump, the Trump campaign opened was a, a referendum against that, and people voted for it in huge numbers, which means that they they want to go in a different direction, and that's that's pretty scary, right? Some people say class is the determining factor. Some people say race is the determining factor. Factor, and of course, some people say gender was the key factor that uh, yeah. white men wouldn't uh, wouldn't vote for a woman. How much responsibility do you think? Uh, Hillary has for failing to keep Trump out of the White House. Well, I would say a lot, and but uh, I wouldn't confine it to Hillary Clinton per, specifically. I think this is a, a kind of more of a global a global failure of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and and this is not something that's confined to this year. I think if they made you know some conscious choices a couple of decades ago where they decided that they were no longer going to be a down-the-line, pro-union, pro-working person party, that they were going to become, quote-unquote, more business-friendly, which in real terms meant that they were going to start taking money from Wall Street uh, and from heavy industry and stop relying on union money and, and, and union foot power in, in terms of you know, winning elections. And that decision, I think, ultimately cost them because nobody, nobody out there sees the Democrats as the protector of the working man. Like, like that's that's not the way it is. If you, and, and if you go to Trump's rallies, you'll inevitably find a, a pretty sizable sprinkling of people who are either former union members, current union members, or who formerly would have automatically been, you know, Democratic voters. And this is something that Bernie Sanders talks about all the time. You know, like the, the neighborhood that he grew up in. These days, the analogous neighborhood would be a 100% Trump voting neighborhood. And in the old days, those people were automatically Democratic voters. And so, in, in my mind, this goes all the way back to that, to, to, the, to the decision to rebrand the Democratic Party into something else and, and, allow, and to allow a certain kind of voter to drift in a different direction. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's on them. That and the fact that they picked, they picked a, a person with a 25-year history in politics at a time when people, the, the one thing they wanted more than anything else was somebody who they, you know, who wasn't part of, of the, you know, Washington. But Hillary did get nearly three million more votes than Donald Trump. Any, Absolutely. Any other election, that would have made her president. What I make of that is that basically anybody running against Donald Trump should have should have won by 15 million votes. I mean, he, he, he was... He was totally, not only was he totally unqualified, but he had openly insulted basically every major demographic group that votes, except for, I guess, you know, white racists, which is, uh, of course, a sizable number of people. But there's, there shouldn't be any way that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. There, you know, he, he shouldn't have been able to get anywhere near the numbers that he got. And the fact that the Democratic Party uh, officials now are sitting there saying, well, we won. We won the the popular vote, and if really, if we had done X, Y, and Z, we would have been fine. You know, they should be sitting back in abject horror, saying, "How could we possibly have lost?" And what about Bernie? Well, Bernie was a factor. I'm pretty sure the Democrats hadn't accounted for. I mean, they 
they did what the what the Republicans uh, didn't do. They uh, they worked pretty hard to limit the field as much as possible. And uh, what they didn't want to do is make it an open competition for for the nomination. And uh, they set it up so that you know Hillary Clinton would have a clear path for the for the nomination. But what ended up happening was you know I think Bernie hurt her hurt her very badly because she ended up having to run a campaign. Uh, that was not her typical kind of campaign. She, it, it forced her to move in, in a more progressive direction, and that's not naturally who she is. If you remember back in 2008, I mean, I certainly do. Uh, I remember watching her in, in Pennsylvania, and her rhetoric really wasn't that far off from, from a lot of Donald Trump's rhetoric in that race when she was running against Barack Obama. And she, she was very enthusiastic in that race, and she had a lot of m- momentum. This time around, it just it just felt like she was forced into into positions that she didn't want to adopt naturally and and that, that was that was what the the Sanders campaign you know forced her to do your predecessor at Rolling Stone described Nixon as representing the dark heart of America that was in the 60s and 70s i wonder if you would describe uh, trump in similar terms and what adjectives you would use i never want to compare myself to to Hunter Thompson because it's kind of a losing losing proposition for any writer, but um, I think there are some similarities because what made what made Hunter's book Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 1972 what made it you know art as opposed to just good magazine writing was that he was obsessed with Nixon in a way that was almost more like a you know the a reverse love affair than it was like a normal reporter politician relationship he 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 was he hated Nixon with a passion with the fury of a thousand sons and he thought that Nixon represented exactly what you said the dark heart of the american dream but nixon was he was a very different kind of character than trump in in a couple of ways number 1 Nixon was an intellectual. He was somebody who played classical piano. He read all the classics. You know, the way I put it in, uh, in Rolling Stone was uh, Nixon was an intellectual with a pig's heart, and Trump is really just the pig part. Um, there's no, there's there's no hidden second level to Trump. He's gross on the outside. He's gross on the inside. He's just all villain. He's just the perfect modern American. All, all, he, all he does is, is consume things and talk about himself. So, yeah, absolutely. In the same way that Nixon represented everything that was dark about America in that generation, Trump, Trump is our generation's monster, for sure. The book is Insane Clown President. The author is Matt Taibbi. Matt, thanks so much for talking with us today. Absolutely, John. Thanks so much. We're still thinking about the Women's March on Saturday. What a great event. More than three million people marched against Trump in hundreds of cities across the United States, something like a million in Washington, D.C., which is three times more than attended his inauguration. What's next for the three million people who took to the streets on Saturday? For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? And on Saturday, she covered the D.C. March live on MSNBC with Joy Reid. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. You were there. Uh, What was it like from your vantage point? 
Uh, it was wonderful and bewildering uh, at the same time. Because I had been covering it with joy, I hadn't been able to get out near where the, the, the main program was to hear it. It was still going on when I left uh, MSNBC, but I couldn't get anywhere near it. And that was my first clue that, like, wow, you know, this is really something. Everywhere I looked, down down all sorts of streets, off the parade route, that they were just clogged uh, with 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 women, with men too. I would say, you know, I was really heartened by the number of men. I don't know if it, maybe maybe it's a third, maybe it's a little more than a third, but um, it was men and women, and they were really happy. And tr- I tried to get my bearings because I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't know if the march was going to start or what. I, you know what I should what I should try to do. Like, do I try to get to the front? Do I try to just go on the march and experience it as a normal person? And I realized getting to the front, I, w- I couldn't find the front, really. I, I, I could Basically, I, I felt I knew where it was, but it was so far away from me. That was stupid. I couldn't find any of my friends. I had at least a dozen good friends there, and none of our phones worked. So I just started walking. At, at one point, there was an unfortunate rumor that um, that the march couldn't march because activists had already filled all the space from the beginning to the end and therefore, you know, couldn't go anywhere. And people were kind of demoralized. And I think some people might have left. I saw people walking away. Uh, But a couple of us just decided, well, let's, you know, we want to go to the White House. Let's go to the White House and march that way. People had, people just, you know, I want to see the Lincoln Memorial. So what what you saw was like the wheels of a spoke, the, you know, especially the way Washington is uh, divided and, and the way the streets work uh, with so many diagonals. Every direction you looked at was like, oh, I guess that's the parade route. Oh, that, that must be the parade route. Because all these streets were packed with marchers. And so we did go toward the White House. We were not allowed to go in front of the White House. They blocked it off, um, which was very disappointing. And so people started chanting, whose streets are streets? And, you know, our taxes pay for these streets. And then broke into a spontaneous, pay your taxes, pay your taxes. That was really funny. And then we, uh, we had passed the very, very ominous Trump hotel, kind of like a medieval castle where people are being mistreated, um, <laughs> although it, it costs a lot of money once you get in there. And uh, people started chanting shame. They wrapped it in what looked like police tape, yellow police tape, but it actually had a kind of offensive message that I don't know if I can say here, but pe- people were picking up the, the police tape and wearing it as uh, headbands, fancy saucy headbands. But there was just a really uh, genuine do-it-yourself quality because there wasn't, and I don't know if I say this as a criticism, if if it had been too heavy-handed, it wouldn't have been as much fun. But, you know, I don't know that they tried, or at least they didn't try near where I was, to like have march marshals or something around so people kind of have a sense of where they're going or what they're doing or um, but the the really remarkable thing to me, the police just let us spill over into streets that we were not supposed to be in. And I don't mean sidewalks. I mean streets. Um, everywhere we were, there were people on sidewalks, too, but that we, we took over the streets. And 
And the police were really friendly. And even the cars that we were inconveniencing, people would get stuck in, you know, in the march. I mean, people were honking and waving and friendly. And and towards the end, some of the people in the cars were actually marchers trying to get home and, you know, just accepting that, that it was going to take them a little while. So, you know, it was a really, a really warm, collaborative vibe. You know, I think there's a, a sim- similar feeling Everywhere I know here in L.A. where where we record this show was exactly the same problem. The marshals were completely overwhelmed by how many hundreds of thousands of unexpected more people showed up. The subway system was uh, and buses were completely jammed. Uh, The streets were completely full. It was that thing where you there was no place to go because people had filled every street. Eventually, the police opened uh, two other major streets, half a million or maybe three quarters of a million in L.A., half a million in in New York, 175,000 in Boston, 150,000 in Chicago. And now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Almost 100,000 people marched at the state capitol in St. Paul in the middle of winter. And my favorite march, I'm sure you read about this one, the Sister March in Longville, Minnesota. I found it on the website, uh, womensmarch.com. This is a little town way up north with a population of, I don't know, under 200. But it listed an organizer at at the website. Uh, Michelle Barton, a retired librarian originally from Duluth. And Minnesota Public Radio reported before the march that she was planning to march alone in Longville all by herself because she couldn't find anybody else to do it with her, but she was going to stand up. So she was like the lonely hero of the Minnesota women. But then on Saturday, 60 people showed up and joined her march in this town of 200 people. Uh, Wow. I friended Shelley Barton on Facebook where she had just posted after the march, <laughs> quote, I guess I am now officially an activist. <laughs> yes, a rebel rouser. I'm sure there's more like her all over the place. I saw one in Alaska where it was just terrible snow in a tiny, tiny town. But, you know, dozens of women were marching through a blizzard with their I could, their signs were barely visible. Of course, the big question is what what comes next? Where and and how can this incredible energy be focused? Where do we go from here? David Brooks argues in the New York Times that these marches were, I'm quoting, can never be an effective opposition to Donald Trump because they focused on the wrong issues. And he listed reproductive rights, equal pay, affordable health care, and action on climate change. He said... These are issues, I'm quoting, for upper middle class voters in university towns and coastal cities. He said these should have been issues about the problems of the Trump voters, uh, the way globalization is decimating jobs, the way migration is redefining nation states. So the march should have focused on on jobs and on immigration and not on these other uh, upper middle class college town issues. What do you think about David Brooks argument? I think it's preposterous. I think if David Brooks wants to see a march like that, he should organize it with his friends. But you know he'll never get off his soft butt to do that. Um, and, and I would I would take issue with it. I mean, I there, there were other there were there, there was definitely an economic message. There was you know free college, reduced college debt. There was a lot about criminal justice reform. There was a lot of Black Lives Matter signage and and chanting. Um, again. 
he's right. It was not a march that was designed to reach the Trump voter, although it did. You know, there were there were marches in in red states and red districts, too. But, you know, that's just that's just asking for something that the the creators and the marchers really had no interest in. We can take a time and think about the best approach to to those uh, benighted folks. But now is not the time. This was a reflection of the fact that the most qualified woman in the world had the election almost stolen from her by the least qualified man in the world, and that everything she did was turned out to be not enough. And it really spoke to the way a lot of women feel that in our own lives, we will never be good enough. We will never be as good as a mediocre man. Uh, and, and I think there was a lot of pain in that election loss, and it was channeled into this pain and a lot of anger. Uh, and it was very prescient anger because every day, every day that goes by, he does something so horrible that, you know, lots of people said, oh, he's not a dogmatic conservative. So let's see. Let's give him a chance. He's a dogmatic conservative with a, a, a fascist streak. So, you know, the march was was to raise the spirits of the people who feel threatened to show them that they're not alone, that we that we're in this together, that we'll protect one another, and to think about how we go forward. So I'm sorry if it didn't if it didn't meet David Brooks's standards. So where do you think uh, we should go now with this incredible energy? Emily's List ran a training for 500 women. I think they had to turn away a lot of women in terms of how to run. There was a lot of talk about how to plug into. Uh, you know, local elections. Uh, I think I think lots of different people have plans for how you know how to reach people. And then the other thing that I that, that I heard was the people themselves not to act like they're an inert mass of you know clueless individuals. They even even the people who and I met several not several a dozen people who had never marched before, as you know, unbelievable as that may be to us who really had ideas about what they were going to go back and do and that they needed to work for a campaign, that they needed to not just vote well or, you know, vote for Democrats, but to go out and, and join campaigns and work and look at their Democratic Party or look at look at their local Planned Parenthood and just really plug in that they felt isolated and they felt that the, in a way the election result caught them so off guard, partly because they were isolated. And so there really was a spirit of, people, this kind of untapped activism where people realize, no, it's not enough to vote. It's not enough to pay your taxes, maybe write a, write a few checks to some good causes. You're going to have to put your body someplace the way we did it the other day. So I thought that was really great. Joan Walsh, read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. Talk to you later. Now it's time to talk about suing President Trump. On Monday, a group of prominent legal scholars filed a lawsuit in federal court arguing that Trump had violated the Constitution because foreign governments have paid money to his businesses, something that looks sort of like a bribe. One of the attorneys filing that lawsuit is Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Irvine, and he's probably done more to shape how the Constitution is taught to law students than any other legal scholar. He joins us now. Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, and thank you for those kind words. Well, it's very hard for ordinary citizens to sue a sitting president. Your lawsuit is based on an argument that Trump is violating the Constitution, something called the Emoluments Clause, not exactly a household word in America these days, but we're learning fast. What exactly is the Emoluments Clause, and why is it in the Constitution? I think you're right. I think until a few weeks ago, people thought emoluments were about a skin cream. (laughs) Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution says that those who hold positions of trust in the federal government can't receive presents or emoluments from foreign governments. This was meant to mean that they can't receive benefits from foreign governments. The framers of the Constitution had a broad definition in mind for the emoluments clause. Why? The framers of the Constitution were afraid of foreign influence with regard to their fledgling government. They wanted to limit foreign influence by saying that essentially all who hold office in the federal government shouldn't be receiving presents or benefits from foreign governments. And we have some examples that we know about, about the benefits that Trump has received from foreign governments. For instance, we know that a bank controlled by the Chinese government rents office space in Trump Tower. And I read that the embassy of Kuwait moved an event from the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington to a hotel owned by Trump, according to this news report, after members of the Trump organization pressured the ambassador to hold the event at the hotel owned by the then-president-elect. And that's exactly what the Emoluments Clause was meant to prevent. It's instances where foreign governments will make choices to give benefits to those in the federal government to curry favor with them, to avoid other repercussions. And so we're seeing it already. Um, To give another example, in addition to the ones you mentioned, There is Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. It's the site of the old post office. Donald Trump personally owns 76% of the interest. Most of the rest is owned by his children. There's actually a lease term that says that the hotel can't be owned by anybody who holds a position in the federal government. Trump is violating the terms of that lease. But in addition, President Trump is constantly receiving benefits, such as the ones you described, from foreign governments through that hotel. And this is one of many. And how would you prove in court that Trump had received money from foreign governments? What kind of evidence would you be looking for? I think that the key is, did he receive benefits or profit? I think if he's renting rooms, holding facilities available to foreign governments at his hotels, he's getting profits. That's emoluments. Additionally, I think it would be helpful to see his tax returns so as to be able to see the benefits that he's receiving from foreign governments. Trump says he's withdrawn from his companies and turned them over to his sons and that this lawsuit is, quote, purely harassment for political gain. That's Trump's own words. Does his uh, withdrawal and turning the companies over to his sons solve this problem? Well, first, there's no indication that he has legally turned the businesses over to his sons or anybody else. I'll focus again on the Trump International Hotel in New York, in Washington, where he owns 76%. There's documentation of the hotels that he owns in New York. So he's said he's done this, but there's no indication that he has. Second, the key always is, is he receiving benefits, 
emoluments from a foreign government. If he is receiving them, then it violates the Constitution. Yes, I know he said that, but there's no evidence of it. And I, I understand that he's trying to dismiss this lawsuit as being based on partisan political gain. But I think one of the most basic principles of American government is that no one, including the President of the United States, is above the law. The Emoluments Clause of Article 1, Section 9 is there for a reason. And it seems clear to me he's been violating it since the moment he took his oath of office on Friday, January 20th. Trump's lawyers clearly are concerned about the issues you have raised, and they, they've also said they will donate any profits at Trump hotels that come from foreign government guests, that they will donate the profits to the U.S. Treasury. Does that solve the issue uh, in the Constitution? No, for many reasons. If I get a million dollars of benefit, I still benefit, even if I choose to give the million dollars away. Also, it's not clear how profit is going to be calculated. How are we going to know whether the Chinese dignitaries chose a Trump hotel as opposed to a Hilton or Hyatt? And how are we going to determine what's the profit there? And besides that, given the lack of transparency concerning Donald Trump, such as not having his tax returns available, I wonder how we'll ever know what profit actually means here. Uh, we need to talk about some some uh, legal issues here. I hope we're not getting too far into the weeds, but standing is is always a, a, a thorny uh, part of the, the weeds, I guess we can call it. Uh, in order to sue someone for wrongdoing, you have to show you've been actually harmed by that person's wrongdoing. It can't just be that in principle you think it's wrong or that it violates the law. So you need a plaintiff who has been actually harmed. It can't just be law professors. Who is your plaintiff and what, what is their, the harm they have suffered? The suit was brought by an organization in Washington called City for Respon Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, otherwise known as CREW. Standing is based on a Supreme Court decision from 1982, Havens Realty versus Coleman. There, the Supreme Court said that an organization has standing to challenge illegal activities if they can show that their resources are being diverted because of those illegal activities. In Havens Realty, it was a claim that illegal activities in renting of property violated the Fair Housing Act, and the Supreme Court said that a public interest organization had standing to sue because the illegal activities distorted their expenditure of resources and diverted their attention. This case is just like that. Cruz says in its complaint that it had to divert an enormous amount of resources and energy because of the violation of the Emoluments Clause. So you do have a pretty clear precedent, but I, I have to say, in general, it's hard to figure out for the layman who would have standing to bring a lawsuit about bribery of a public official because it's, it's the whole public that, that, is, that suffers the harm, not just a single person. Isn't that right? I think, that's right. I think it's important, therefore, to allow an organization like Crew that is injured to be able to sue. And I think there may be other plaintiffs down the road um, who want to come forward who also can claim injuries. Um, and we'll have to see how that happens. But um, I think there's a strong precedent to allow an organization like Crew to sue under these circumstances. Yeah, speaking of other uh potential plaintiffs uh, talked earlier about the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, which lost the business of the Kuwaiti embassy that moved their reception to the Trump Hotel after Trump got elected. 
they clearly lost money because of uh, of the president. Wouldn't Four Seasons be a very good plaintiff in a, in this case? I think they would be should they decide they want to sue. There may be all sorts of political reasons why another competitor hotel decides not to sue the president of the United States. But there you have an example of someone who's injured. But I don't think we need Four Seasons. I don't think we need the workers at Four Seasons to be able to sue. I think Havens Realty versus Coleman, in the language in that case, strongly supports the ability of crew to be able to file this lawsuit. The other argument that I've seen against this lawsuit is that if the president violates the Constitution, there is a procedure for adjudicating that, and it's called impeachment. It's up to Congress to charge the president with crimes and to try him for for crimes. That's why uh, the founders put impeachment in the Constitution, and that's what should happen if Trump is violating uh, uh, the the emoluments clause. What, what do you think of that objection? Undoubtedly, impeachment is a remedy for presidential misconduct. I think it's a mistake to say that impeachment is the only remedy for presidential misconduct. And the reason for that is that impeachment is so drastic. Only twice in all of American history has a president been impeached by the House of Representatives. Never has been a president convicted by the Senate. We have to have ways to make sure that the president complies with the law, short of impeaching for violations. And again, I think this is about the most basic principle. No one, not even the president, is above the law. So you're not seeking to remove him from office for this violation of the Constitution. What would it mean for you to win? The complaint does not seek money damages. And of course, it doesn't seek removal of Donald Trump from office. It asks for two things. First, it asks the federal court to issue a declaration, technically called a declaratory judgment, that Donald Trump is violating the Emoluments Clause. And second, it asks the federal court to enforce this by an injunction enjoining Donald Trump from continuing to violate the Constitution of the United States. We don't see a mass movement of millions of people mobilizing around this lawsuit, but it certainly raises fundamental questions. Let's, let's pinpoint those. Why should ordinary people care about Trump violating the Emoluments Clause? People should care because it's in a Constitution. And no one, not the president, should be above the Constitution. But I think that people should care because there's a reason for the Emoluments Clause. We want to make sure that foreign governments aren't exercising influence over those who hold office in the United States. We don't want the president to be benefiting from a foreign government who's trying to curry favor. But we also want the president to be taking actions relative to foreign governments based on who's giving him what benefits. I think this clause made great sense in 1787, and it makes great sense in 2017. Erwin Chemerinsky, we hope you succeed with this case, and thank you for talking with us today. It's always great to talk with you. Thank you. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. 
at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.